This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker with Greg Miaskovic, co-founder and CEO of CapBase that raised $1.1 million. And in this episode, we'll talk about this fundraising process and also raising while you have a pre-series competition because you know, CapBase is competing with Carta. And we'll talk about how Greg managed to differentiate themselves, uh, differentiate CapBase from Carta and still uh prove to the investors that it's worth working with them. And we'll also talk about distributed teams and how to build them. So Greg, I'll let you off by you giving us some background on yourself and on CapBase. Yeah, so I, I'm a, this is the second company I've founded. And so I, I've been working on startups as an early employee or a consultant or founder or advisor for more than 12 years now. Uh, I sold the last startup I started, uh, it's a real-time bot detection startup called Swarm. Um, we sold to Integral Ad Science in 2016. Um, I worked at IAS, and it's what Integral is known as, um, abbreviated as, um, and I led up their R&D into advertising fraud for a couple of years before IAS was acquired by Vista Private Equity in July of 2018 for around $850 million. And so... Uh, after that acquisition went through, I left to go work on CapBase in August of 2018. Mm -hmm. Got it. So what does CapBase do? What is it about? You can encapsulate what we're doing as sort of like an automated back office for your company's financial and legal and uh, compliance tasks. So that includes everything from contracts management to cap tables to uh, government filings. Mm -hmm. All right, got it. So we'll move, we'll we'll get back to this uh, to the differentiation between cap base and Carta later on. But first, I actually wanted to talk to you about uh, the difference in experiences in your first company and in the second company. So was it much easier to fundraise for cap base compared to the first company, or was it not? Did, did the investors pay a lot of attention to your first you know, success, to the first sale that you made? So we were a bootstrapped company. So we sold for around the same valuation we could have raised the seed round at uh, in 2016. And so it wasn't a huge exit, but I think a lot of people who have had early exits from their first company go on to build, uh, this is like pattern matching within VCs, they go on to build uh, bigger, better, more successful companies the second time around. So mm -hmm. to, to some extent, yes, things have been a little easier, but for the most part, they've been easier because I already have relationships with people uh, at VC funds. Maybe it didn't work out, but I had four or five meetings with them and got to know them. So mm -hmm. now, now instead of having to ask for a warm intro, I just ask them what, you know, send them an email that's really contextual, like, hey, I saw you invested in this company. Congrats with your success at this company where I know the founder. Uh, I'm working on something new. I'd love to chat. Let me know if you have some time next week. It's much, nice. easy, it's much easier than if I have to go, uh, you know, scour my network to see which of the 10 mutual connections we have on LinkedIn mm -hmm. it has a strong enough connection to this VC to do a warm intro. Right. That takes a lot of time and that's your approach is definitely much better and much more reliable for certain. So let's talk about differences between the two companies in terms of your approach to them. So 
let's compare how you acted in the first company and in the cop base. So what, what are the major things that you're diff doing differently? Uh, we started out, uh, I think, at my previous company, building a product and figuring out uh, if we can build some technology that even works to solve the problem, then figured out what we're going to do for selling that and what the vision is around uh, go to market. Uh, we didn't really do a lot of market research. We didn't talk to a lot of potential customers. So uh, what I would tell all, uh, and that, that led to some difficulties when it went to time to like actually try to build a scalable customer acquisition mm -hmm. uh, funnels. So we had a very difficult time with go to market because we didn't spend a lot of time up front talking to customers. We just went and potential customers. We just went and built the thing. So the be some of the best startup, best advice in that book, The Lean Startup, is to go out there and talk to uh, as many potential customers as possible and uh, take very detailed notes uh usually in a spreadsheet so you can quantify how many people have a specific pain point mm -hmm. uh, so we followed that advice and i taught i mean i for my last company we did y combinators program for super early stage companies the yc fellowship program so i just went through the yc forums and i would give help to people um, they were asking about something completely unrelated to what I wanted to talk to them about, but it was like <laughs> an intro to someone at this company, like, cool. Okay. Now that I, since I have your email, can I talk to you about your experience founding a company? Like, mm -hmm. you know, the first time you did this, um, what was your experience raising money from investors? How much did you spend on legal, uh, and so on. And so fortunately these conversations that I had with potential customers, Many of these founders who I talked to are also angel investors, and they liked what we were doing and our vision for the company, and they offered to ask us if they could invest. So it, it actually, our first checks for raising money for CapBase were all entirely from founders who uh, I was interviewing for doing product research. Nice. That's a nice mixture there, you know, interviewing, getting uh, super valuable feedback. And then as a bonus, you get a check. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So my major question is how to differentiate yourself from the competition. So basically it's 2020 now, everything that you can imagine is already built. And the only thing you have left is, you know, trying to build something like the thing that's already out there, but significantly different. So how do you manage to differentiate yourself from a company like Carta? Because they're doing somewhat similar thing, right? And they're a really big player in the market. So how do you manage to differentiate yourself from Carta? Carta doesn't really have a very good feature set for early stage companies. They don't actually deal with the company formation and they kind of assume a company uh, onboarding into Carta has a board set up and is a more complex company. Their pricing doesn't make sense for early stage companies. It's also not transparent. 
So uh, founders don't get a transparent value from their uh, product offering. Instead, they have a guy named Colton or Chad calling them three times a quarter, trying to earn <laughs> $5,000 to $10,000 uh, yeah. table. So, and, and if you look at, look at it, I mean, Carta does have a lot of market cap in these companies that are on their platform, but they have 14,000 customers. Go to their website. That's what they advertise. There are more technology startups being formed in a given year than Carta has customers. So if we build a product that's really geared towards early stage market and own new company formation, then that's our, that can be a very successful wedge into the market. And we're getting customers um, before they become Carta customers. So the challenge then becomes, or the questioning, the line of questioning from uh, VCs becomes how do you keep Carta customers from switching to Carta at a later date, as mm -hmm. opposed to how do you differentiate yourself? So, so I think we've had a fairly decent reception to to framing things uh, in our pitch that way. Mm -hmm. Got it. So, let's talk just a little bit about your pitch deck. Uh, I like this. You know, uh, taking the the smaller. I mean, it's not a smaller niche, but it's an earlier niche. Uh, of the Carter customers. Uh, I have a question. So on the pitch deck, when you were presenting it to the uh, investors, many people actually include the potential acquirers. Did you do the same thing with Carta saying like, hey, if we'll be able to actually capture this niche, we there, there is a high chance of us getting an acquisition offer from Carta or someone, some other big player. Did you do that or do you try to, to stay away from that? Uh, we try to stay away from that because I think it gives the framing that you're uh, gearing your company towards an early exit, although I could see how some people think that that framing is useful. However, I mean, if it comes up in conversation, like there are plenty of strategic acquirers for cap base, like we fit into the product portfolio of AngelList, for example, which has worked on Republic for crowdfunding has their syndicates product for fundraising, uh, the micro right. funds that are, you can create on AngelList. Uh, and and they have, they, they worked on, was it CoinList with Filecoin um, for when ICOs were a thing? <laughs> <laughs> I missed that part, to be honest. Uh, so, so they've they've dabbled in, in sort of, uh, it, Things things in the similar it, it sort of extending their their product scope uh, and so this fits in there and then you have Stripe where um, they have Stripe Atlas but it's kind of a uh, it's it's not a very fully complete product mm -hmm. so Stripe you know yes they you can pay five hundred dollars and they will incorporate you and set up your bank account but it doesn't really do the full company setup like the employee stock option plan the board setup and founder shares. And so, so, uh, right. so Stripe, if they, you know, if they actually wanted to build Atlas into a real company management tool and more than just lead gen into their payments product, then they're also a potential strategic acquirer. So the, there's, it's, it's, it's easy to paint that uh, narrative if people ask. But frankly, I, I mean, I think CapBase has the potential with the way that uh, we're going about things to, um, we have the potential to uh, take over the market uh, with our with 
by, by controlling the uh, getting customers before Carta gets them. So right. I'm, I'm comfortable with not trying to sell a narrative of an early exit or a strategic exit. Mm -hmm. Right. That's I like that approach. And it does sound like you have tons and tons of potential acquirers. So that's great. I'll be I'll be looking out for news to see the acquisition, you know, someday. Uh, <laughs> but let's I'd, I'd rather you read about our IPO. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I'm pretty sure we'll stay in touch after that. So I think if you will IPO, I want you to text that to me. <laughs> <laughs> but let's move back to fundraising process. So it feels like you have a really nice system in terms of, you know, staying in touch with investors, saying them some updates, saying congrats on some, some of their actions. What's your advice to early stage founders who have who do not have such connections with investors yet, who did not have meetings with them? who uh, maybe can get some sort of introduction, but not really. What's your advice to those people? Uh, I think you need a way of going, of, of hacking it, of going zero to one. By that, I mean, uh, you have to figure out uh, how to get someone who believes in your vision, who has a network to help you whether that's for advisory shares or um, they're your first uh, investor check. Uh, and that might be someone you find on Twitter. Uh, and I've seen this successfully where, executed successfully, where founders insert themselves into conversations that VCs are having about the deficiencies of existing product solutions about products that they wish existed uh, to get on their radar. And I, I mean, you can see it in public in real time on a Twitter thread. Mm -hmm. Right. Twitter, I hear that thing so many times every single day and I still refuse to use it. <laughs> I can't do anything to myself, but I'll definitely get on Twitter. There's, uh, there's a lot of value for yeah. Startups that don't have a network going through incubators and accelerators. Mm -hmm. There's diminishing returns for someone who has an existing network in Silicon Valley to go through an accelerator or incubator. Right, right, right. Yeah. But I if, mean, if you don't, if you don't have a network, that is a way of seeding your network uh, and getting intros to a lot of people, whether Absolutely. it's customers, partners, or or investors. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So now let's talk about the distributed team overseas. So you've uh, decided to build a team remotely, basically, not US-based. Why is that? And it, it happened even before the coronavirus hit, right? Well, I've been running remote teams and working remotely for many years now. And that's partially just how I like to work. That being said, uh, the quality of employees overseas has gone up dramatically in part because knowledge of technology tools and development tools has democratized dramatically. And unless you're working on some bleeding edge technology requiring specialists that are concentrated in a geographical area, you can probably hire the technical talent you need overseas. The same applies not just to technical talent, it also applies for marketing and growth talent. 
like we just extended, we just hired someone for marketing growth who worked at Web Summit, one of the probably the largest uh, technology and startup conferences in the world in Portugal. And his English grammar is better than most native English speakers in the US that I could hire at, <laughs> to write content. And he can get, and I mean, so, so you, yes, like, uh, I mean, you're not, you still have to, you know, you have to do, go do, do the work to find the right people. Um, and recruiting is, is difficult no matter mm -hmm. when you're hiring. Um, but we've had really good luck hiring overseas and it saves us on burn rate because we're not spending uh, so much money on Silicon Valley salaries. Right, right. That's a great decision, especially now with the coronavirus. I think more and more people are trying to build a distributed team and go overseas. So good luck, people. <laughs> and let's go back to fundraising. So you're actually raising another uh, AC round right now, right? Yeah, so I would describe what we raised before as, as pre-seed funding. Uh, so we've just sort of started up the conversations again. Uh, it was kind of fruitless and pointless to talk to investors or start new conversations. Mm -hmm. In March, a lot of investors were triaging existing investments. Yep. Uh, they were, or they were adapting to the new reality of having to deal with pitch meetings uh, over Zoom and, <laughs> <laughs> and getting to know a company remotely. Um, I don't know what the statistics were before the pandemic, but I looked at some statistics that 41% of VCs have now funded investors who they, or sorry, entrepreneurs who they've never met, and more than 60% would consider it. So if, if that number goes up pretty substantially, let's say it's like 70% have invested in a company that they've never met or they've only you know, talked to over Zoom uh, and 90% are willing to consider it, well, that really changes the, the playing field for like a, a lot of things. Like is talent going to continue even concentrating in Silicon Valley? Are founders even going to move there anymore? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's going to have to change also how VCs work as well, um, because they're going to have to seek out deals outside of their immediate professional network uh, that exists, you know, the existing connections they have, and do lead generation like any other business to to get good deal flow. A an example of uh, a VC that is doing that is there's fast, this fast uh, a, a application and funding process that NFX put together built on top of uh, their product for kind of standardizing how you uh, organize materials for investors, the brief. I think that's the future of uh, inbound VC deal flow. It's going to be professionalized products and software services. It's not going to be uh, getting an introduction uh, to every single portfolio company through someone you worked with uh, in the past. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So uh, I was really interested in how you're approaching it right now in terms of who do you reach out to and how do you reach out to those investors? So you already have some connections to the investors, of course. And how do you leverage them? How do you know if it's the right time to reach out to the investor and ask for a check or is it not? Because some investors are still sitting there and waiting for the dust to sell down a little bit. Uh, so how, how do you figure it out? How do you know the timing is right? Um, I usually ask, uh, what level, uh, if they told me something, it was too early for them when I chatted with them six months ago, then I add them to a list of prospective investors that receive our company updates on progress we're making with the product, uh, beta customers, etc. And so they can read that and choose to uh at their leisure asynchronously respond then if you know if they tell me it's too early i also ask them specifically well what level of market penetration traction do you want or would you want you know do you typically invest when a company achieves this level of traction i ask them that point blank so then when we achieve that level of uh, traction, like I'm re-engaging them exactly at the point where they wanted us to, uh, they, they want, they, 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 they're usually typically interested in investing. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. And I was actually wondering which tools are you using to do that? So is it just simple spreadsheet where you put the, all the emails in and then you use something like, uh, HubSpot or, uh, MailChimp, what are the tools that you're using to send those updates? Or is it some software like FounderSuite that you're using to do that? So we actually, for organizing our fundraising, we use our own investor CRM of cap inside the CapBase product. And we've built, so in order to streamline this, we've also built a Chrome extension because most founders are doing their research uh on investors and what usually on linkedin or angelist so using the chrome extension when you're doing your research and you find an investor you want to add to your target list you just push a button uh from the chrome toolbar uh and then it will scrape the data and pull it into our crm inside the capbase product nice and how much is that specific tool is it in a free mode is it in a uh, which tier is that? That's just included in our core product offering. Nice. That's uh, that's actually a great tool. Uh, I use a whole mixture of tools <laughs> to do all that process. So maybe I should consider it uh, cap-based. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's 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 talk about the lounge. So currently you are in somewhat closed beta, right? And you're launching in only a few months officially. So how does that affect your fundraising process? So uh, if investors can just Google and see it live, you know, and try it without gaining your permission, let's say so, uh, how do you think that affects the, the fundraising process? Well, we have a demo for investors um, that we show them uh, because it would be hard for them to actually try out all of the parts of the product even if it was live without entering into fictitious contracts with fictitious entities like how would they try the ad advisor flow for adding mm -hmm. some board of advisors nice 
That's really interesting. That's great. And so we need it. We need to have a sandbox demo environment. Mm -hmm. um, we're we're working on um, figuring out uh, how to do that. Uh, with just a company that's pretty set up that a user could interact with. Um, but in the short term, we're just doing the demo uh, ourselves. Uh, mm -hmm. Investors on a call. What's your recommendation, though, to founders? Should they rather, you know, push a probably a little bit laggy version, but still something that investors can see just on the internet, or should they wait and show the the investors just the demo that they have? I I think it depends on what kind of product you are building. If you're building a consumer app, by all means, you should have the ability for people to download it, even if it's a beta test app link. Uh, if you're building an enterprise platform with subscription revenue, that's a much more complex product than a, a guided demo is probably uh, maybe more successful. In general, there are some investors who they uh, the way that it, they'll do everything over email. They're the exception, but I think there's some super angels who operate this way where they just want a video over email. They want a deck that has more text than a typical deck so they can read it. Mm. Um, because they don't they don't even want to go bother going through uh, the pitch process on the phone. Nice. That so many people message them asking them to invest and they get so many intros that they have no way of dealing with inbound in a rational mm -hmm. re in, a, in a reasonable way um where they could actually take every single potential every single intro call that's really nice and should people actually customize their uh pitch decks to those specific investors or should they just send whatever they have i i think it's actually strange because you may end up having multiple versions of a pitch deck. You mm -hmm. may have a intro lightweight version of the pitch deck that you're really feel totally comfortable sharing. And if people forward around, you might have the more detailed pitch deck that you send to someone who has uh, already, you've already had a good chat with them and they've expressed interest and, and now they're evangelizing the deal to the rest of the partners within the fund. Um, you might send them the more detailed deck then. Uh, and then there are uh, specific investors who want, uh, they don't ever want you to pitch. So if you think about information density, like how much text is on each slide, you have to balance uh, the, how this deck is going to be used. If this deck is going to be read asynchronously, it can have more information density. If the deck is going to be used in a live presentation where you're presenting from the deck, then you should have less information density because you want to be saying those words, a lot of that content, and elaborating with examples instead of um, having a lot of text on each slide that is sort of redundant with the content you're covering uh, verbally. Mm -hmm. Right, right. That's actually good advice. And normally, yes, you do have multiple different pitch decks. So let's move to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. What's the one thing that you would like the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? 
If you're looking to start a company and launch your startup, give Capbase a try and sign up for our beta waiting list. And you can email me at greg at capbase.com and I'll get you a beta invite as soon as possible. Awesome. Perfect. I'll definitely leave a link to Capbase and to your email in the description of this episode. So if you do want to start your company and don't want to deal with a lot of legal issues, just check it out. All right. So thanks a lot, Greg, for coming up and for participating on Fundraising Radio. Really appreciate it. I think it was a pretty interesting episode, discussed tons and tons of topics. I'm pretty sure I forgot something from my list, but it's already too late now. I said we're wrapping up. (laughs) So thanks a lot and have a great week. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on.